innovation as such, much like Bitcoin, is a-jurisdictional. And so where does it go? I mean, it goes where it's treated best, um, much, much like the old saying that um, money goes where it's treated best. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin. I'm your host, Brady Swenson. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Sam Callahan, Bitcoin analyst for Swan Private, and Natalie Smolinski, executive director of the Texas Bitcoin Foundation and a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, join us. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Sats fans. What's going on? This is Brady Another edition of Swan Signal Live. Today, I've got Sam Callahan and Natalie Smolinski talking about CBDCs. Uh, these are two of the, I think, most underrated mega brains in the space. So I'm excited to dive deep into this topic of CBDCs. It's very timely as the prime minister or incoming prime minister, I think, of, of England was talking about uh, or shilling their upcoming CBDC. So let's get into what these things, uh, what these countries are actually talking about um, and we will do that right after I talk to you about Pacific Bitcoin two, day, uh, two weeks from tomorrow. Two weeks from tomorrow. It's been a long haul. The SWAN team has done an absolutely incredible job. I forgot to turn off my notifications. Hold on. Sorry, everyone. It's not very professional, but it does happen every once in a while. Um, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be absolutely incredible. SWAN team has been uh, doing amazing work for the past six months to put this thing together. Every single panel, I just finished the schedule for the two stages, the hard money stage, which is our main stage, and the Swan Dome, which is our sort of Bitcoin community-focused um, stage, are incredible. Every single session is incredible. It's densely packed. I think you guys are going to have a hard time choosing uh, what to go see and watch. The Swan Dome, like I said, is a, you know, it's a Bitcoin key. We're going to have a really fun trivia you know, hosted by a couple. We're going to have Bitcoiner speed dating, so you can learn some things about six of the most prominent Bitcoiner there. Uh, not not talking Bitcoin stuff. Let's just get to know these these people. So we're going to do other fun things like that in the Swan Dome, including a pitch competition, uh, kind of like uh, a Shark Tank style. Uh, and then on the hard money stage, session after session, packed with incredible panels. We've got fireside chats, of course, with Michael Saylor. He's going to close out the show. We've got Lynn Alden, we've got Jeff Booth, and four or five other great uh, names, Alex Epstein, uh, in fireside chats on the main stage, and like I said, incredible panels. There's a ton of stuff happening around it. People have been organizing events around the main show, uh, so there's plenty to do all week uh, in Santa Monica and the surrounding area. If you are on the fence, you should pull the trigger right now. Go to PacificBitcoin.com. You can use code Brady to get a discount. And come join us. It's going to be absolutely phenomenal. Sorry, guys. Uh, okay, so let's get into it with Sam and Natalie. Let me bring them in here. All right. Thanks, guys. Sorry about the phone calls. And apparently, I didn't turn my reader off successfully anyway. So um, let's go ahead and get into this. Natalie is the senior advisor at uh, the Bitcoin Policy Institute. She's uh, executive director of the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. She's been writing some incredible uh, deep dives research into CBDCs and what uh, they portend for all of us. And Sam Hallick Callahan is the lead research analyst at Swan Private Client Services. And like I said, uh, one of the biggest, uh, under, most underrated 
you know, mega brains in this space. Sam does amazing work. He helps me produce this show, does a bunch of research so that this show is higher quality. He has nothing to do with the fact that my phone ringer was on that entire time. He is the guy bringing the quality to the show. Um, so Sam, thanks for your help on, on everything on the producing the show and all your great work. Natalie, you as well. So we're going to start with you, Natalie. Uh, CBDCs seem to be picking up steam across all governments uh, around the world, uh, especially the, the bigger governments in, in Europe and uh, are talking more about um, embracing a CBDC. You recently wrote an excellent article uh, called Why Should the U.S. Reject CBDCs? So let's just start with a basic question to set the stage here. What are CBDCs and how are they different than what we have now? Yeah, so um, money is already highly digital, as you can imagine. Um, however, the vast majority of this money is um, commercially issued money. So it's money generated by commercial banks, meaning it's not a direct liability of the central bank. Um, CBDCs would change that. So CBDCs are a digital form of money that is a direct liability of the central bank. So it's N0 money supply. It's the equivalent of cash, but in digital form. All right, Sam, uh, let's follow up. Uh, you, like I said, mentioned at the top uh, recently that the newly appointed uh, UK prime minister released a video uh, about how he plans to push for a CBDC. And uh, so I'm wondering, when did this all start and what's the current state of uh, the CBDC development in England and elsewhere? Yeah, um, you know, this really started a while ago, actually. Um, I'd say it really started with uh, China in about 2014, where they started to really look into central bank digital currencies. Um, things really picked up steam after Facebook announced their Libra project. I think that little fire under um, these central banks that they had to start taking this technology seriously. Um, and that's when the literature and the publication and the research really started to explode after 2019. Um, today, around 109 central banks, making up uh, about 95% of GDP, are researching or investigating central bank digital currencies. But right now, there's only two live retail CBDCs, and that's from Nigeria and the Bahamas. And um, there's a couple kind of pilots going on in terms of in China, as well as in the Eastern Caribbean. Uh, but those are just pilots. Uh, the ones in the Bahamas and Nigeria have actually been incredibly disappointing in terms of their adoption and their implementation. Um, I think civilians, uh, especially in Nigeria, are just having a hard time trusting uh, the central bank that's devalued their currency. And they, they can see through the central bank digital currency that's been uh, implemented there, that it's just the same policies, the same fiat, the same bad um, policies related uh, to the bank uh, in a new shiny wrapper. And so they're having a really hard time getting people to actually adopt these central bank digital currencies. On top of those ones that are in there, there's a couple projects going on between central banks who are working on improving interoperability between uh, central bank digital currencies. There's Project Dunbar, which is between Malaysia, Singapore, South Africa, and Australia. There's Project Jura, which is between the Swiss and French central banks. And then there's uh, the Enbridge project between the People's Bank of China, Thailand, Hong Kong, and Saudi Arabia. Um, all of these are just kind of in the early stages, I'd say. Hong Kong recently put out a paper last month 
Um, and they're kind of further along than a lot of uh, these countries uh, in terms of developing central bank digital currencies. In their paper last month, they said they're still two to three years away from implementing any kind of real retail CBDC on the ground. Um, and so I think people uh, maybe think that this is closer than it is because Hong Kong is one of the furthest along in their development, and they still say they're two to three years out. And so the idea of uh, the UK or the US uh, implementing one anytime soon, I think is a little far-fetched. But that's kind of where we are in terms of central bank digital currency uh, development, I'd say. So it's pretty like well along at this point. Uh, Natalie, do you think any of these are, are imminent? Like, What's the timeline that we're looking at to have uh, a major country introduce or implement a CBDC? <clears throat> I would say you know, at least 50% probability that we have functioning um, CBDCs over the next two to three years um, in a major industrialized economy. You agree, Sam? Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, that's that's kind of what Hong Kong Monetary Authority was saying. That's kind of mm -hmm. that's kind of the closest, I'd say. But I'd say in terms of Western uh, countries, it's a little further out. Okay, fair enough. Uh, nation states tend to move a little slowly, uh, especially implementing something as uh, as massive as a a change in the way that they issue their money and mm -hmm. uh, distribute it to their citizens. Um, Natalie, your recent white paper that we mentioned up at the top there about why the U.S. should reject CBDCs. Um, it really brilliantly laid out a lot of ways that CBDCs could be abused uh, by governments and central banks. You mentioned negative interest rates, for one, and censorship. Uh, so I'd love for you to just like go off on all of the bad things that CB CBDCs could enable uh, that aren't possible today and, and the risks to your average uh, citizen like ourselves. Yeah, so the best way to think about a central bank digital currency is that it's programmable money. Um, so that gives the state full control over when, how, with whom that money is used. Um, in effect, this makes fiat currencies no different from company script or tokens um, that are exchangeable only within a very sharply demarcated set of guidelines that can be changed at any moment at the will of the sovereign. Um, and so money at that point ceases to meaningfully be money. Um, it's a token um, and it can be only used at the pleasure of the state. Um, there are all sorts of ways that this power can inevitably will be abused. Um, it can be used to um, demarcate who is and is not uh, a legitimate object of or subject of a transaction. Um, so which businesses and individuals you can and can't transact with. It can impose penalties um, directly for illicit transactions. It can prohibit them or preclude them entirely. Um, you can be subjected to direct haircuts on your CBDC account balance, um, negative interest rates at any interval or frequency, um, daily, weekly, monthly. Um, so, I mean, it's, it represents unprecedented direct control over 
individual economic life. And these technologies will be implemented um, virtually certainly in most countries around the world um, because their implementation is happening without any public discussion, debate, deliberation, completely outside the democratic process. Um, and so CBDCs are themselves symptomatic of the consolidation of state power and the erosion of uh, civil liberties worldwide. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what we're looking at, everyone. Uh, this is a big deal, and that's why we're talking about it today in depth. Sam, anything to add to potential harms of a CBDC? Um, no, I thought Natalie did an amazing job. and I would like to hit home on, on the last point she said, that a lot of the research is being driven by the Bank of International Settlements innovation hub that trickles down into the central banks. And uh, the, this is an unelected uh, group of individuals that acts above um, democratic processes, like Natalie said. And so that should just, from a starting point, um, that should be noted uh, that a lot of these developments in central bank digital currencies um, would grant power to these international financial institutions who would most likely be in control of, let's say, the ledger of a global central bank digital currency or multi-central bank digital currency. And so I think that's a very important point because you don't really see much public consultation at all, um, especially in the United States. I really don't see it. You see it a little bit in, uh, from the ECB. Um, but she's exactly right. There's, there's not enough uh, awareness around this stuff. And that's why when I see uh, it trending, CBDCs trending on Twitter, um, it makes me kind of happy because more people are starting to wake up to this stuff. You know, Bitcoiners um, were kind of uniquely positioned to understand the threat here because it's kind of the intersection of two complex topics. It's central banking as well as, uh, you know, cryptography uh, and cryptocurrencies kind of combined together. And so, Bitcoiners have been talking about central bank digital currencies for many years, but now it's starting to trickle out into TradFi and people are starting to understand the risks here. And I hope that, you know, podcasts like this and papers like what Natalie wrote help to just raise awareness of what these uh, unelected central bankers are trying to do. So, Sam, let's just keep rolling with you for a second. How, how would a CBDC actually work? Like what are the current designs that these central banks are considering when it comes to implementation? Yeah. So it's kind of changed over the years. In the beginning, uh, they kind of had two uh, designs, which were a token-based CBDC and an account-based CBDC. Now the token-based CBDC was kind of thrown to the wayside because that would have uh, the anonymity of cash and it would act just like a stable coin, but it wouldn't uh, be good from a central bank perspective because it would be hard to implement AML KYC policies. And it would really, you know, it, they wouldn't be as in control as an account based CBDC. And so that's what we talk about with um, it would basically be an account, uh, but it would be a liability of the central bank, but it would be held in commercial banks. OK, so they, they used to say they're going to do a direct account at the central bank. But they decided that that's not really a good thing uh, for plenty of reasons. It poses operational and policy risks for these central banks. Um, they're not used to dealing with customer-facing functions uh, like onboarding accounts, authorization, clearing, settlement, um, compliance with AML, KYC. That's for commercial banks. And central banks don't want to deal with those operational uh, tasks. 
Um, they, they're not like set up to deal with that. So they want to push all that to the commercial bank. And so the new design that they want is an intermediated central bank digital currency where the, the, the private sector intermediaries do the distribution and circulation of the central bank digital currency, while the, the central bank at the top has a different ledger, a wholesale CBDC. And so what would happen was uh, the retail CBDC is held at the commercial bank, and they kind of deal with all the, the nuance and details of what's going on. And then once they collect the transactions, the central bank is overlooking everything at the top. And they say this is a decentralized validation process, but it's really just a single central bank node looking down from above and make sure that, yeah, from their wholesale ledger matches their retail ledger at the commercial bank and everything's good. And then that's where final settlement happens once the central bank above says, yeah, that looks good. And so it's actually very similar to the current system we have. I would just argue that it would be more risky. So it would give them more power to surveil um, and it would, it would, increased security risks where it would, they would have to collect more data and it would cause all kinds of inefficiencies rather than efficiencies, which is what they argue for. So it's really just the similar system, just added blockchain complexity that makes zero sense. And so that's, that's the kind of design they're looking at right now. It's a slow, let's use the slow database. Yeah, right. let's, use the, let's just the downgrade our database capacity, uh, bandwidth capacity. So, so Natalie, if the CBDCs, I'm sorry, if um, the central banks are not directly issuing the CBDCs, like there's not a FedCoin and a FedCoin app that you're using to do your banking, et cetera, um, does this, I assume, first of all, that this is used by, the, by uh, people who are advocating for CBDCs to say, hey, this is a bit of a separation of concerns here, so this will help with privacy issues and censorship issues, et cetera. Uh, is that indeed what they claim? And if so, is that is that true to have that little separation between the central bank uh, with the commercial banks kind of, you know, in between uh, using that model that Sam just, uh, just described? There is no meaningful separation um, between the surveillance powers of any financial institution and any central bank. Um, in effect, there is data sharing already de facto between all of these organizations. Um, and uh, the fig leaf separation between a central bank owned ledger and a commercial bank owned ledger is um, a logical separation. Uh, at best, it's not a um, any type of operational separation for um, the representatives of the central bank um, and the financial crimes enforcement um, units. Okay, that makes sense. Um, are, are they indeed like making that claim though, uh, when they're trying to answer, uh, you know, critics who are worried about privacy violations, censorship, etc. I mean, yeah, they're making all sorts of claims. Like <laughs> yeah, privacy will be protected, but privacy from whom and under what conditions? Um, we, we now live in a world with persistent surveillance as the de facto norm. And our constitution was written in the 18th century. Um, so the four, fourth amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizure, um, you know, no warrant shall be issued without probable cause. Um, that has not kept up with the pace of technological development. And so in effect, we we already live in a world where 
uh, Fourth Amendment protections don't meaningfully exist. Um, mm -hmm. Anything that leaves a data trail digitally that you do is subject to um, oversight by any state actor at any time, not just domestically, but um, around the world. Um, and so the question is, is civil society going to um, meaningfully push back against CBDCs such that a broader conversation is had about civil liberties and whether we have any intent whatsoever at remaining a free society. Well said. Um, so, 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 so. I'll just, I'll just jump in because I'll just add. I don't know what's going on with Brady, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, the model that they're going for in terms of commercial banks um, holding the data instead of them, because a lot of their arguments uh, in terms of the central banks about why, say, a CBDC would be better than fintech having all the data is it's better for user privacy. So it's kind of like ridiculous uh, idea, but they think it's actually better for for users to have the data held at public institutions because they think public institutions don't have any reason to abuse that data or sell the data for profit. Um, but if you look at this intermediated model that they're now pushing, now the data is gonna go all to the private commercial banks. And so it's the exact same issue, except it's a different private institution, whether it's FinTech or it's now it's the incumbent commercial banks that have all of this transaction data and economic data that they can pull from. Um, it, it really negates that whole argument that central banks have been pushing in their publications for years that, well, it's better for CBDCs to exist because the data will be with a public institution, not a private institution. But now the design is completely opposite. What, what you just described is, in fact, um, what's been called surveillance capitalism. Um, so um, the fact that a, a public institution might be the primary custodian of the data all that does is remove one step, the, the step of the private company selling the data to the public institution. <laughs> they, are, they are in fact the, the ultimate customers uh, for this data that is generated in custody by private companies. And so the private company profits, um, the state institution increases its control over the population and it's a win-win for everybody ostensibly. Um, the question is, who is this generating value for? Um, you know, it, it seems to me um, to be a rent-seeking economy where the, um, the generation of value is happening at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid. Um, and in fact, uh, the value is sort of being farmed from the day-to-day -day activities of the 99% um, of the bottom of the pyramid, you know, to use, to use some perhaps outdated language. Um, and so this, this is a problem, you know, if, if data is in fact a, a form of currency, um, then who is profiting off of the aggregation um, and selling of that currency? Brady, I don't think your mic's coming through, buddy. Technical difficulties.
There you go. Okay. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to dive in specifically to China because we've been talking a bit about privacy and their digital yuan project. Uh, how could they be thought of as an example of where things might be headed uh, on the privacy front? Uh, because they are, seem to be out in the lead in terms of implement, implementation. And of course, we all understand that there is a sort of different level of privacy protections <laughs> Uh, probably uh, around zero uh, in China as opposed to the United States where there are some privacy protections, although, as Natalie mentioned, they are degrading. Um, so let me toss that to you, Natalie. What are your thoughts on China's digital yuan? Yeah, uh, I mean, China's digital yuan is um, designed to do exactly what we spoke about a CBDC in general being designed to do. It's It's designed to... Um, police financial transacting in advance. So rather than retroactively um, seeking out and punishing uh, violators uh, of financial uh, rules or norms, um, you police them in advance by simply precluding um, the types of transacting that um, you deem to be illicit. Um, there are also secondary benefits for the state. So um, a CBDC can be um, used to prevent capital flight, which is a major concern um, in China. It can also um, be used to directly implement monetary policy in real time. Um, so you can, you know, directly implement, um, you know, uh, funds rate increases or decreases, um, uh, haircuts, uh, increases of the money supply, stimulus payments, all of that can be, you know, directly administered in real time. Um, and so for, for these reasons, um, CBDCs are often framed as technological innovation by their proponents. And we see this in the United States. I mean, there are, there are many um, congressional representatives um, and senators who speak openly about, our, about the need for the U.S. to not fall behind China um, in technology innovation. And, and so, again, the question is, innovation for whom? Um, and there is no doubt that China has been at the forefront of technological innovation for, for a long time. I mean, in, prior to the 20th century, I mean, it was the world's leading technological power for millennia. Um, and so this is nothing new. The, the main question from a political economy standpoint is um, what system of government um, are we committed to? Right now, what we're seeing in both Russia and China is a consolid consolidation of power behind a unitary executive, i.e. a dictatorship. Um, but this, this is, again, nothing new. Um, it is the historical norm more than it is the exception. Um, so she has just consolidated his power, um, uh, his power uh, over the CCP, um, the CCP's power over um, political life um, and China's strategic direction. Um, it's, it's not a, an overstatement to say that um, we, in effect, have a new Chinese emperor um, and a new Chinese empire. Um, same thing with Putin uh, in Russia. Um, and so in the United States, what is most concerning has been the consolidation of executive power 
um, over the past several decades by um, both you know, explicit proponents of the theory of the unitary executive, um, which is a theory in constitutional law um, that, that suggests that um, the executive branch, um, i.e. The, the president, um, should have primacy over the other branches of government. Um, and this has been kind of the de facto sort of unthinking, I would say lazy uh, direction in which mm -hmm. our political economy has progressed. The best thing that may happen for the United States is so much political chaos and fragmentation at the level of the federal government that in effect, it's um, this, this trend toward the consolidation of executive power um, slows down enough for our legal infrastructure to catch up with the pace of technological development. Um, and a lot of people don't like that because they see it as uh, symptomatic of you know, Americans being unable to make decisions or solve problems at scale. And my response would be that when you're solving problems at the scale of 400 million people, there are very few problems that can actually be solved at that scale. Um, and if you try to solve them at that scale efficiently, quickly, then in effect, you are imposing uh, an authoritarian regime um, that is at odds with the constitutional foundations of our republic. Okay. So here's a fun one for you, Sam. Um, so when I hear Natalie this and you describing what CBDCs are, it's hard for me, hard for me to understand why a rational person would think this is a good idea um, beyond maybe they just don't care to look into it. Um, so looking for you to maybe play some devil's advocate here in steel man, the other side, what do you, th uh, what do CD CBDC proponents say are some of the benefits? Why do they think it's a good idea? Why do they argue some improvements that CBDC would bring? Uh, yeah. Um, so the improvements that proponents say that central bank digital currencies will have is that they are obsessed with trying to improve cross-border payments. So they think it's going to improve the efficiency of cross-border payments and reduce the costs in general of the payment system. They say it's going to encourage financial inclusion, especially amongst the poor. Um, they say it'll be a new and more efficient uh, policy transmission channel, like what Natalie was just getting at in terms of implementing uh, fiscal, monetary, and tax policy uh, directly through a central bank digital currency. They actually argue that it's going to reduce the ecological footprint as well. Now, I think all of those things are wrong, and I think they're actually all the opposite. Um, I think what they're finding when they go deeper into the research, when I, when I read their literature, it's like they're drawing inspiration from Bitcoin, this technology that's been designed to circumvent authority. Um, and they're using it, <laughs> they're realizing it's not the best blueprint for a public good provided by a central authority like themselves um, because they're, they're finding out that blockchain makes no sense, uh, but they're trying to work around it and basically create a permissioned quote unquote decentralized ledger where they're still in charge, which makes no sense. You might as well use a more centralized, um, more upgradable, more scalable system instead of some fake quote unquote decentralized blockchain-y version, which has single points of failure baked into it. Um, and so 
and, and it kind of like all of these things, the markets operate more efficiently when private sectors provide, you know, innovations and provide uh, products and services that help lower costs for users. The government shouldn't compete with the private sector there. And if you look around at what they're building and even some of these uh, these projects within the Federal Reserve, like the Fed now, they're moving forward to improve the efficiency of payments without a CBDC. And so, and they could arguably be even faster without the need for a CBDC. And so I think it actually causes more fragmentation of the payment system because you'll have siloed central bank digital currencies until they kind of create some kind of global multi-chain CBDC, which would require a ridiculous amount of cooperation. Um, I think it's actually going to increase the costs of payments. It's going to make it slower. It's going to be worse privacy. And so I think you should uh, criticize CBDCs from a technological standpoint. Um, as they're currently designing it, it just it, it actually would make everything worse. And financial inclusion, you would need, like, think about old people trying to use technology. Think about people in rural areas. Um, you can't really say this is better for financial inclusion uh, than, say, just regular cash. And top of that, it centralizes power. It centralizes data, creating honeypot for cyber criminals to hack. It gives new governments new power to surveil and control, which we've already mentioned. And so the risks far outweigh the benefits of this technology. And so it's, it's not even just a solution looking for a problem. I'd say it's not a solution at all. And the amount of wasted resources these central banks have done to look into this central bank digital currency while they're failing at their job of price stability. I mean, they should be taking all their efforts to try to figure out how to do their jobs instead of playing around with this stupid blockchain. Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous to me. Um, so they say it's all these good things, but I would argue that it's actually worse on every single argument that they have for why they should do a CBDC. Okay, let's take just a quick break. Uh, pause here in the middle of the show to shill some Pacific Bitcoin again. Now, we're going to take a look at a clip that we happen to uh, come across. Uh, from the movie Say Anything, this is this is um, the, the Cameron Crowe movie with John Cusack. So at the end, there's that famous scene where John Cusack is holding up his uh, his boombox. We happen to find the original clip. Uh, so let's let's listen to what John Cusack's boombox was actually playing in Say Anything. But uh, everybody that I wanted to meet in the Bitcoin world seemed to be there. And a lot of a lot of people reached out to me and said I should come. And then I looked at uh, looked at how many Bitcoiners were getting excited about it. And I thought I didn't really want to miss this. It seems like it's going to be the event of the year at this point. So I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing all of you. It should be a good time. All right, Michael Saylor knows what's up. Uh, he knows what is in store for all the attendees of Pacific Bitcoin and has declared it uh, the event of the year or what he expects to be the event of the year. So come and join us, join Michael Saylor. The cool thing about this conference is that it's small enough to be able to get around and meet the Bitcoiners and maybe shake hands and have little conversations with the big names in the space you've been learning from, including Michael Saylor. 
and uh, still big enough to have that event energy uh, around. And it should be uh, incredible vibes there. If you buy a ticket, you can use code Brady uh, to get a discount. You'll also get four free copies of Bitcoin Magazine. And you'll also have a chance to win an entire Bitcoin. Fold and Swan are giving away 100 million sats. You can come up on the main stage, spin the digital fold wheel, and uh, one of the 18 people who will be spinning will win an entire Bitcoin, which is very exciting. Okay, let's get back to the show. Uh, Natalie, you argue that one way government can abuse its powers by not allowing freedom to transact or perform economic activity, the censorship of economic activity. So we talked about how CBDCs uh, would enable this, but what are the broader implications beyond the, the, the censorship, the control that that brings, the potential privacy violations beyond that? What are like the economic uh, implications of a government being able to censor transactions like this? Yeah, so this is an excellent question. Um, and it's, I would argue it's actually a historical question because there's a lot of empirical data that you would need to, I think, make a convincing argument, um, whatever your answer to that question. And I would suggest that the empirical data points to um, jurisdictions with the freedom to transact, greater freedoms to transact, um, having a net positive flywheel effect on all surrounding jurisdictions, regardless of their systems of political economy. So there's a way in which innovation as such, much like Bitcoin, is a-jurisdictional. And so where does it go? I mean, it goes where it's treated best, um, much, much like the old saying that um, money goes where it's treated best, right? Um, there is absolutely a strong connection between the depth of capital markets in a jurisdiction and their capacity for technology innovation. You simply can't have a strong entrepreneurial ecosystem without deep capital markets. Um, and so uh, when you limit the possibilities for private capital formation, what you're doing is you're putting a limit on um, the ability to innovate in that jurisdiction. Um, however, that doesn't prevent other jurisdictions from innovating. And so what a lot of authoritarian governments do is they sort of bank on um, capital and talent um, percolating toward freer jurisdictions, which do um, the, the heavy lifting from zero to one um, and then in effect copying or incrementally approve, improving on the innovations that are happening in those jurisdictions. Um, and so the question is, is the United States going to continue being that um, ground zero for uh, net new technology innovation um, by uh, enshrining the freedom to transact um, in laws and norms? Or is it going to move in the direction of um, most authoritarian governments, which is a sort of a copy it better model? Sam, did you want to add anything? Um, unnecessarily, I, I just think it's 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 kind of like there's wider issues with censorship in terms of financial interaction 
transactions that impede uh, economic actors uh, to work together and it impedes like overall prosperity. And that's what I loved about Natalie's piece when she dug into like, uh, you know, the work of uh, David Hume, I think, and, and others. Um, and so I, I just think it's an important topic. And I would just point, her to, point people towards Natalie's paper for that section because I just really enjoyed reading about it. <laughs> so, okay. Quick question before we move on to the follow-up here. Will CBDCs result in more financial censorship than we have now, simply because it makes it easier? Uh, do we do we have reason to believe that we'll see more financial censorship? I, I assume we're sort of headed, our trajectory is headed toward generally more financial censorship over the decades. But uh, would this... Would a CBDC uh, actually result in a meaningful increase, like a step change? Uh, Natalie, I'll toss that one to you. Yeah, absolutely, and no doubt. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd agree, and I'd agree. Um, I think we're in in for more censorship, regardless, because when we yeah. arrive in periods of more currency devaluation and higher inflation, uh, what you also see is a rise of capital controls. And uh, the reason being is these uh, monetary authorities need to keep people trapped in the local currency or else their monetary policies are completely ineffective. If people have uh, viable alternatives that are accessible, um, they will leave that currency. And why would somebody hold something that's being devalued, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent uh, on the year? They'll choose whatever they can. And so you'll see increased capital controls. Um, to try to trap people into that local currency so that they can do effective monetary policy, quote-unquote effective monetary policy. Um, and the central bank digital currency would just give them a, a better, easier tool to do that. Um, and, and the idea would be over time, it would likely replace uh, physical banknotes, physical cash, which has historically been an escape for people. Now, Bitcoin obviously throws a wrench into all of these plans, uh, and, and I think that's why you see uh, Christine Lagarde saying things like Bitcoin is an exit. Um, and, and she's worried about that for everything that I just said. And so Bitcoin kind of changes the game and, and adds this X factor that I think central bankers are still not really appreciating, to be honest with you. Let's come back to that to close out this hour of the show. Uh, but I want to move on to this question for you, Natalie. Um, so one of the things that CB CBDCs uh, would enable if physical cash were no longer available is the central bank's ability to um, drop interest rates to negative levels. Uh, do you think that CBDCs are meant to replace cash? Uh, why is this a big deal if true? And then Sam, I'm going to kick it to you to actually, let's start with you, Sam. Then I'm going to toss that question back to you, Natalie. Sam, can you talk to us about negative interest rates? What, is, what are negative interest rates and why have they been you know, implemented? And what, how did, what effect does it have to have? I mean, you're essentially getting paid to borrow money. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, personally. I mean, I could talk about it, but I love Natalie's uh, comments on negative interest rates. I love, I love to hear her. I could do the cash one. But, uh, okay. Yeah, okay, cool. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so the price of money is, you know, one of the two major tools in the toolkit of monetary policy, right? There's the price of money and there's the supply of money. Um, and so 
if um, if you can earn money by, uh, let's say, depositing um, your money in, in an FDIC insured bank account, um, then what that does is it incentivizes people to save. Um, but if you lose money for doing that, which is what a negative interest rate is, it's, it's a penalty for saving, um, then what it does is it stimulates near-term spending. Um, it also uh, drives people away from the uh, centralized banking system. And so this is the problem. How do you penalize people for saving, but take away their off-ramp, their exit um, out of the centrally controlled banking system um, so that our monetary policy doesn't lose uh, its effect? Um, and the way you do that is by, uh, well, either making the off-ramps illegal or making them so friction-filled that only a very small percentage of people will be able to use them. And so this is really gonna be the main question for Bitcoin adoption in the coming decade, is what do the on-ramps and off-ramps to Bitcoin look like in each jurisdiction? Um, and how can the Bitcoin network be architected to preserve freedom of exit um, for those whose, whose governments are well incentivized to uh, preclude or remove that freedom. Yeah, it's, it's essentially like they're trying to steal from savers. And right. So so I think that the freedom of exit is a wonderful way to phrase it. Um, and, and that's I've said it before, but I think there's a race going on between Bitcoiners and, and the central banks or traditional financial system. Um, we have to build better on ramps and tools um, as quickly as possible to try to get people that that freedom of exit um, while the central bankers not only uh, are trying to build central bank digital currencies, but also they're just they're just kind of reaching this point where their currencies are really starting to struggle and, and they're starting to devalue at a more rapid pace and inflation's at historic highs. Uh, I think 2.2 billion people are living in double digit inflation right now. Um, and so we're in a race right now. And, and I think Bitcoiners and as a whole and the industry as a whole has to really think about how to build more on ramps um, or off ramps from fiat, I guess you could say, and more accessible for people, especially in these jurisdictions where they're going to be suffering more than people saying in America or Western developed countries. So for, first of all, real quick, in about 10 minutes, we're going to be moving over to spaces. Uh, all three of us will be live over there. Of course, we're piping the audio in from YouTube right now. If you are watching on YouTube, you can join us over in Twitter spaces here in about 10 minutes, and you'll have a chance to come up on stage and ask some questions or just kick it around, give us some thoughts that you had from the show. I uh, just want to give you a heads up on that. Uh, so Natalie, for someone maybe listening who doesn't understand uh, what negative interest rates mean, which I guess Sam just <laughs> uh, described to us, um, how, but how would a CBDC enable a negative interest rate? Like right now, I mean, we've seen negative interest rates in, in Europe for quite some time. Uh, and obviously they had implemented them there. How would it be different? Uh, what would the effect, the, the, the change be between implementing a negative interest rate through a federal, like a central bank pre-CBDC and then post-CBDC? Yeah, so the difference really is one of speed and efficiency. Um, the way the current banking system works, you can, of course, implement negative interest rates, 
um, it's just a, a bit of a deferred effect because you have the federal funds rate that's set by the central bank and then that has to be interpreted and implemented by the commercial banks um, on, on their end directly with their retail accounts. Um, a CBDC would make the federal funds rate um, programmable um, directly in the currency itself. So there is no time delta um, between the declaration of the new rate and its implementation for uh, retail end users. Okay. So this is one of the reasons that CBDC seems like a very attractive tool for yeah. a central bank, because it's just basically they can implement their monetary policy more directly and see the effects right. more quickly. It's, it's innovation for them. You know, mm -hmm. it, it truly right. enables them to accelerate the speed at which they destroy our money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you have you have a pulse on what's happening in Congress, Natalie, because you're yeah. working at the Bitcoin Policy Institute and tracking all of that stuff. And thank you, by the way, for doing that work. It's very important. Um, and in the government around, uh, you know, we see elected officials pushing back on the idea of a CBDC and others, of course, who are pushing it forward. Can you give us your thoughts around the general feelings on CBDCs in Washington and maybe some of the the larger proponents and critics uh, who yeah. are who are talking about it. Most most um, congressional representatives don't know and don't care, um, and this is you know largely because this isn't an issue anyone's really hearing about from their constituency. The small handful of proponents of a CBDC um, claim that you know this is. Uh, progressive policy, that this is something that's going to increase financial inclusion, that's going to make it easier for the unbanked and their jurisdictions um, to access the banking system. However, none of those constituents are the ones coming up with this. Like, the, <laughs> this is not congressional representatives hearing from the poor and the unbanked. They, what they really want is a CBDC. Um, it's a <laughs> kind of a story that they're telling to justify this policy. Um, there is also a small handful of senators and congressmen who are opposed to a CBDC. And so I would say that in the House of Representatives, um, Representative Tom Emmer has been leading this fight. He introduced legislation earlier this year to prohibit the Federal Reserve from issuing direct retail accounts. Um, but, you know, to Sam's point, if a CBDC actually gets implemented in the United States, it won't be direct accounts, retail accounts at the Fed. Um, it will be a tiered system, um, likely where the Treasury, uh, not the Fed, uh, issues a wholesale CBDC um, that is then distributed to commercial banks who are the ones who hold accounts for retail customers. And so that's really the threat. Um, and that's something that I don't think, uh, the E-Cash e Act that was introduced this year would mandate that. So there's a pro um, CBDC piece of legislation out there, but there, the, the legislation against a CBDC doesn't factor in this different design model. Um, so even if it were to pass, it would not preclude the creation of the CBDC as proposed. Yeah, I would just I would just add that, you know, I'm pretty critical of the Federal Reserve usually, but out of all the central banks and I guess institutions, the Fed has actually shown more 
restraint or conservatism when it comes to a central bank digital currency. I don't agree with Neil Kashgari very often, but I actually agreed on a clip, uh, I think a month ago or so, where he's like, I don't understand why we're actually doing this. If we were China, we would love this, but I cannot think of one reason why America should be doing this. And I'm like, okay, this is weird day. I'm agreeing with Neil <laughs> Kashgari. Um, but you know what? They've actually shown a lot of restraint and it's interesting because it's our government that's actually started to push it. There was the executive order that caused, um, you know, all these working papers to go out around the industry that Biden uh, kind of led the Biden administration. And one of those papers that came through, I don't, I don't know if it was last month or the month before, their number one recommendation was to for the Federal Reserve to accelerate um, their central bank digital currency research. Um, and so this isn't like the Fed is kind of like been kind of turned off by this whole thing, but it's our government now telling the Fed to do this. And so I think that's very telling in general. Yeah. And, and this is, this is why political economy um, is becoming so important in this historical moment. Um, you know, where most of us are familiar with economics as an area of study or government um, as an area of specialization. Political economy is the intersection of uh, governance and economy. Um, and what we're seeing now is a global push um, toward what, what is known as a dirigiste um, form of political economy. This is not strictly a command economy like we see in communist countries um, or state socialist countries. Um, it is, it is rather a kind of softer version of that where the central bank um, has been fully politicized. So it is not an independent institution. It is completely beholden to and captured by the political directives of, um, of senior officials, generally in the executive branch of government, but also it could be legislative or whatever. Um, and so, um, what we're seeing is the end of the political independence of the Fed um, in the United States. That independence is already ended in many other countries. Um, and it is, it is this politicized um, control of monetary policy um, that, from my point of view, will end up being the unraveling or, or accelerating the unraveling of this particular era of fiat currencies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sam's like, yeah, <laughs> no, that, nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's just spend a few minutes here. We've you know mentioned Bitcoin a few times, obviously, but um, we've talked a lot about CBDCs today. And Sam, can you give us some you know reasons or aspects uh, of Bitcoin that directly counters these potential harms. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of this will know what these are, but, you know, there's always people who are coming in new to Bitcoin. Uh, and, you know, can you explain some of these? You can leave a couple for Natalie if you want, but there's, uh, would love to hear the effects that uh, Bitcoin could counter down the road, shield us from. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny, like when I read these papers, it's like the solution's already been solved. <laughs> it already happened in, in 2009 with Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper 
that solved a lot of these issues that these uh, central banks are running into when they're trying to design a central bank digital currency. It's hysterical to me when they they talk about the double spending problem in a lot. They're like, oh, well, there's this problem, though. How do we prevent double spending? How do we prevent you know, fraudulent funds or, or people spending central bank digital currencies that they don't have? And their conclusion is they want to have a, a digital, a, a notary, basically. And they're like, well, guess who's, who's best uh, positioned to play that role? Well, the central bank can play that role. So they can look over the full trans- history of transactions and decide what's truth or not. And um, it just makes me want to scream because I'm like, this has already existed. And if you really want cross-border payments, Bitcoin and Lightning does it in a way that's permissionless and peer-to-peer and it's low cost and it's all of these things that they're trying to do with the central bank digital currency. And they just don't like it because they can't control it. And it's because Bitcoin's decentralized and Bitcoin's permissionless. So when we talk about financial inclusion, I mean, this thing, the central bank digital currency is just full of contradictions where they're like, we want to improve financial inclusion, but it's going to be permissioned. And it's going to come with all these eligibility eligibility requirements. And it's going to have all these uh, kind of strings attached to it where Bitcoin's actually a permissionless you know, payment protocol or lightning network is, if you will. And, and so and they talk about the cyber the cybersecurity risks and how it's all going to be centralized. And, and they're wondering how to deal with that. And they're estimating that their costs are going to increase by 20 to 50 percent. Like I, I think I mentioned. And Bitcoin's never been hacked in its history. So it's the most secure protocol out there. And, and you just want to scream when you're reading this thing. So Bitcoin solves everything that the, the central bank digital currency is promoted to try to solve. And it, it leads to the question, why are they trying to push it down everyone's throats? Nobody's asking for it. People don't want it. Uh, even the people that are unbanked in, in the United States uh, 75% of them, there's about 5, 5% of Americans that are still unbanked in America. And 75% of them said they're not even interested in getting banked. And so the, the people that they say are they're, they're trying to help with the CBDC, they don't even, they're not even interested in it. Nobody wants this thing, but they're trying to shove it down everyone's throat. And the solution has already been provided by the free market. So, and that's Bitcoin. They're happy with their cash. Yeah, Natalie, any thoughts on uh, CBDCs and and Bitcoin? Uh, you know, the the two competing uh, over the next decade or two. Yeah, we're we haven't even yet really seen the uh, the viciousness of of this fight. Um, I mean, Bitcoin anticipated uh, Satoshi Nakamoto anticipated um, that this would happen, and this is in effect the the Bitcoin thesis playing out in real time. Um, It's doing so excruciatingly slowly (laughs) from the perspective of many in the Bitcoin community. However, um, it's also happening very fast on a comparative historical timescale. So the next decade, it will completely refactor the world um, from both a monetary and political political standpoint. Um, Stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's just a few minutes. We'll be over in Twitter spaces. I'll let Natalie and Sam go. Thank you both so much for this great discussion. The first half of the show, hopefully we'll get some good questions over in spaces. So think about uh, if you have any comments as well, uh, thoughts that you want to share uh, that were inspired by this discussion. It doesn't have to be a question. Feel free to request to come up on Twitter spaces and uh, shoot your shot. Uh, I'll let uh, Natalie and Sam go and, and hop in there and I'll wrap things up here.
All right. Uh, thanks for watching on YouTube. Appreciate it. The first hour of the show. Uh, we will be moving again over to spaces. Please do check out pacificbitcoin.com. We are going to be publishing the schedule, hopefully today, uh, if not tomorrow. And, uh, you know, check it out and see if it's something you'd be interested in, in joining. I think there's going to be a ton of opportunities to network. A great, um, a great place to network for a potential career in the Bitcoin-only industry, uh, which is still growing through this bear market. Uh, which, you know, of course, are for building and ready to take its next uh, leap in uh, development, the industry during this next bull run. So maybe get in now, start uh, helping these companies uh, build out and prep for the next bull run whenever it may come. Thank you guys so much. We'll head over to Spaces now and then see you there. Thanks for listening over here on Twitter. Appreciate you all. And thanks for sticking around for the second half of the show. It's our Q&A. I uh, would love to hear any thoughts you all have. Uh, if you want to share your take uh, from the episode or just ask a question of Natalie or Sam, uh, please go ahead and request to raise your hand and uh, we'll get up here and, and keep this discussion going. Rustin, thanks, man. Uh, appreciate it. Let's kick it off with you. Awesome. What a load of signal uh, from Swan Signal Live, of course. So, Working on an article and after this and listening to you guys, who better to ask than Natalie and Sam on this topic? So the article I'm working on is uh, CBDCs are the enforcement mechanism for ESG. And um, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that and and connecting those uh, kind of pulleys and switches and seeing it roll out right before our eyes and Every single person connected to CBDCs is also connected to ESG and the WEF. And yeah, so kind of a big rabbit hole, but I would love to hear you guys' thoughts and uh, maybe get a few quotes from you. Sure. Um, so looking at the rise of ESG um, sociologically, I think what's interesting about it is that um, it isn't one thing per se, but rather reflects the um, increasing prevalence of a new basket of norms um, that are guiding the licit deployment of capital by institutional actors. Um, and so when and where ESG values intersect with CBDCs will be around the privileging um, of certain types of financial transacting and the prohibiting or um, disincentivizing through financial punishments um, of others. Um, yeah, just to add on to that, I would say that central bank digital currencies would just kind of empower them to enforce these kind of policies around ESG. If they wanted to, you know, stop people from doing certain activities or they thought certain behaviors were against ESG, um, central bank digital currency would theoretically allow them to do that. You're starting to hear about things like, you know, ESG credits or something uh, in Sweden. I think I just read something about that. And so this is this is what the kind of things that central bank digital currencies would enable these uh, governments to do. And it, it, it's like, it's where the monetary policy could be weaponized to bring about social 
policy. You know, whether they think something is socially beneficial or not, they can use it as an instrument to enforce whatever social policies they want. And so that's why it's so dangerous, you know, even for, you know, quote unquote, a benevolent government, if that even exists, but it could be abused for, for these kind of purposes uh, to enforce these uh, types of policies that, you know, it's, it's totally uh, against freedom. It's against a freedom of choice to do what you want to put in your body. To, and, and, and so it's really against, I would say, like American ideals, but that's what the kind of power that a central bank digital currency would give these uh, institutions. Man, thanks, guys. You killed it again. Excellent. Uh, keep slaying the Leviathan. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Rustin. Appreciate the question. Coming up here and taking some time to get some thoughts from these two. Arjun, let's go with you next. And Dean, you'll be Great. after that. Great. Thank you. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for your comments, Natalie and, and, and Sam. Uh, very insightful. Um, I you know, just wanted to make an observation and maybe then ask a question uh, on the basis of that. So um, none of this is kind of earth shattering or new, but just the way that I view, um, you know, uh, the way that I view Bitcoin's potential uh, as a global kind of medium of exchange uh, when we do get there um, is by looking at what happened in India um, with the, you know, with the unified payments interface that's been implemented. I mean, for all practical purposes, that's kind of like a quasi-CBDC in my eyes. I don't think it meets the definition of a CBDC, but, you know, if you look at what it does, um, you know, it is an open protocol that uh, almost any, uh, any wallet provider or bank or financial institution or merchant, uh, you know, can, can use. And anyone, you know, with a mobile phone can, um, can pay anyone else, whether it's uh, for a good service, you know, transaction, whatever. However, it is firmly within the government's control, which is why I sort of see it like a CBDC. And if you, if you ask, you know, users of those, uh, of that platform, you know, whether they want to use Lightning, they're like, well, you know, I, I can just use this and it's very convenient. And honestly, they're right. Um, but the, the, the main limitation of that is that it's within a country and that's where I feel like the, the, the value proposition and then the, and the use of Bitcoin and Lightning would be is to actually develop a global uh, seamless, um, uh, you know, network that people can, can use to pay each other. Uh, it exists today, but, you know, it needs, that is the race that I see that we're in uh, with the CBDCs. When all of these uh, different governments and banks do implement their CBDCs and then decide to connect. And I think one of you mentioned that that's going to take a long time. And I agree, but that's the race is I feel like Bitcoin and Lightning and all of us here and, and more outside uh, need to actually develop the solutions and make them usable before, um, you know, that network of CBDCs actually gets online. Um, how do we do that? you know, and how do we get people to use it? Or will they only realize the value of using it after they've seen the CBDC? Like which one comes first? Yeah, um, you know, certainly the, the value proposition of Bitcoin is in its censorship resistance. Um, 
And so I suspect that, you know, for a lot of people who are fairly comfortable in, in their um, ability to transact financially um, or in their financial situation, um, they don't see the value of that. Um, and that's, that's true in, in any country. Um, however, the coming age of financial repression, um, which is already here, but which is uh, accelerating um, at a rapid clip, um, I suspect will leave a growing number of people worldwide um, feeling boxed in and disenfranchised uh, with regard to their uh, existing payment uh, system options. And so there are a number of companies that are building um, these tools to transact with Bitcoin um, that in effect uh, mimic, um, if not improve on the convenience of existing digital payment rails um, to, to ensure that the infrastructures are, you know, ready when, you know, when and as people worldwide uh, become ready to adopt. Um, and so, you know, what I suspect, you know, based on the data to date is we've seen adoption of the Bitcoin network um, plotted against adoption of the Internet. Um, and it, it has actually been proceeding at twice the clip um, that Internet adoption did. Um, and many of the same, uh, you know, criticisms against uh, the internet are mirrored now against Bitcoin. You know, why do we need this internet when we have fax machines and telephones and and secure mail, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we're seeing um, the adoption curve for Bitcoin um, increase exponentially. We're also seeing the adoption curve for Lightning Network um, increase exponentially. Um, it's, it's been growing at a rate of 400% year over year, um, which gets very big, uh, very quickly. So I'm certainly bullish on, uh, the adoption of Bitcoin, um, but it, it isn't going to happen overnight. <laughs> right. Yep. No, thank you. And one other sort of question, if I may, I mean, it, uh, I'll tell you personally, uh, you know, the biggest, um, obstacle in using Bitcoin uh, as as a means of payment or you know pay for services isn't actually the availability of merchants. I mean, you know, I, I could I could pay for a few things with Bitcoin. I, I have had the option to, but um, the biggest uh, roadblock there is actually the tax treatment. And I I just wonder, you know, how much progress we can make without that tax treatment changing in major markets, and how you know what's your view on that changing or what the bearing of that would be on, on the growth of the network and the use of Bitcoin? That is a fantastic question. Um, and it, it hits on the ways that money is defined by the state. Um, so for example, today in, in the United States, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are not defined as money. Um, now from a, strictly empirical standpoint, this could seem rather silly because for all intents and purposes, they are used as money. Um, however, for the purposes of uniform commercial law in the United States, anything that is defined as money um, subjects anyone who is processing transactions with that form of money to the legal requirement to register for money transmission licenses. And so if Bitcoin were in fact defined um, as money um, under the Uniform Commercial Code, then every Bitcoin-oriented payments 
provider company would have to register in every state that they do business in as a money transmitter. And that would create an enormous uh, regulatory burden um, and candidly kill uh, many of these smaller startups. Um, and so the definition of money is uh, it operates on many registers. Um, it's a philosophical um, and political question. It's also a legal question. Um, and, and so these things, this is why, you know, having a, a sense for the political economy of the, the jurisdiction that you're in is so important from, uh, from the objective of facilitating adoption, um, because you can introduce like an extraordinary technology, um, but never underestimate the, <laughs> the ability of the state to throw sand in the gears. Um, it can make life extraordinarily difficult for users of that technology. And so in the United States, my position is that we should differentiate ourselves by being the country where it is easiest um, to hold, use, and transact with Bitcoin. Um, and there's a lot of persuasion that needs to be done to ensure that future comes about. Great, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a regulatory vice grip there. I don't think anyone wants to be classified as a you know, money transmitter and but we do want easier tax treatment. So um, it'll be interesting to see how we achieve that. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Great comments, great questions. Really appreciate it. Anybody else down there want to come up and join the conversation? I have a question, oh, hey, I didn't see you uh, pop up there, Neil. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> uh, hi, Natalie. I haven't read your paper yet, but I've been listening to your YouTube uh, just now. So very, very interesting, everything you shared about CBDC. I grew up in Argentina, I live in Miami now, uh, so I'm very familiar with monetary control um, and all that, you know, policy. Uh, I have a question. Um, you know, I think this discussion is being framed as and many others, even the Bitcoin standard, you know, they talk about the alternative to a, a centralized uh, monetary system. And we read a lot about CBDC versus Bitcoin. And but at the same time, I think, you know, you probably uh, hear the saying that what you resist persists. So I'm trying to kind of like think whether you know, the focus should be in Bitcoin adoption and instead of fighting, you know, the CBDC um, and just kind of use, a, you know, an example in martial arts, you know, Aikido, you, you just let the opponent come to you, you know, and then you use their force against themselves. So do you see, I don't know if you touched on this on the paper, that it may be a benefit in let them come because that will raise awareness in, in the population and it may ultimately help adoption of Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in what you just said. Um, certainly, any type of direct scrutiny by the state elevates the profile of whatever is under scrutiny. Um, so in the same way that the war on terror did not eliminate terrorism, um, but it instead, you know, made it this 
uh, you know, global uh, phenomenon um, and, and arguably inspired terrorism. Um, the, you know, the war on drugs has done nothing to curtail the use and sale of drugs. Um, the war on Bitcoin um, will not destroy or eliminate Bitcoin. Um, in fact, it may catalyze uh, its adoption. So I, I think you're, you're right about that. Um, the danger with, with that path, of course, is that um, the state can make life very difficult um, in, it, as it makes war on whatever it seeks to make war on. And so really my interest in um, engaging with policymakers and the policy community is to limit the collateral damage um, that will be inflicted on ordinary people who are just trying to live their lives um, peacefully and build wealth over time. Thank you. Actually, uh, I'll chime in here because I actually love this question and over time, as I've researched central bank digital currencies, part of me feels like, yes, just let them come um, because I think they're going to be a complete disaster. And I think uh, Bitcoin will, as in contrast to the central bank digital currency, it'll actually be a boon to Bitcoin because people will start to really understand um, its properties and why it's important. And I think the next five to 10 years, uh, Bitcoin censorship resistant is going to be key. And right now, people just don't really care about it in certain jurisdictions uh, because they haven't really felt that yet from a, from a central institution, uh, you know, capital controls, restriction, withdrawal restrictions, freezes. It really hasn't hit home for a lot of people. And so a central bank digital currency, I think it poses a ton of risk to those that issue them. Uh, I think they could be a disaster from a security standpoint. I think they could cause all kinds of problems in the banking system, in the global financial system, increasing financial instability. Um, they could just cause all kinds of things that people aren't considering. And I don't think these central bankers are considering them either. These second order effects and these unintended consequences of introducing a brand new asset into this global financial system. I think it would increase spillover effects and increase the fragility of, of the traditional financial system. And Obviously, Bitcoin being an asset that functions outside that system, and it's the only viable alternative system, I think would ultimately benefit from it. But it, I'm kind of hesitant to say, let them come, obviously, because of what Natalie just said. They can make things hard. It could create a, you know, a temporarily dystopian world that I don't want to live in even for one day. And so I like to raise awareness about them and, and just say, like, hey, if we could you know, nip this in the bud early on and not let these things happen, it's fine. Um, that would be better. But if they come, then I think ultimately it'll crush these central banks who already have credibility at an all-time low. I mean, it's an insane undertaking to launch a central bank digital currency, um, an insane amount of cooperation between countries to launch a multi-CBDC system. And it's it feels like desperation at the part of these central banks who are desperately trying to remain relevant in this uh, digitized world. And to me, it'll be, it would be like Bretton Woods in 1944 or in 1971, where it would change the entire monetary system as we know it. And it, would, it comes with a ton of risk to try to implement. And ultimately, that risk lies at the central bank uh, who issue them. And it could really hurt their credibility, ultimately helping Bitcoin. So... 
I sympathize with that, but I also sympathize with the view that we should stop it from happening in the first place. If I could jump in with maybe a modification of like my first thought that I mentioned earlier is, you know, based on what you just said, Sam, is um, I guess the question to ask is, let's assume if, you know, a CBDC arrives in some, you know, I don't know, G20 country um, and, and you know, the Bitcoin tax treatment is, you know, as it is today where, you know, you're taxed on gains, et cetera, and there's some kinds of restrictions. Um, what what level of readiness, you know, or uh, in terms of tools and services, you know, would, would we want ideally to be in place before the CBDCs arrive? Or do you think we're kind of there already and it's just the next step is just to make contact, so to speak? Or is there more that should be done um, in preparation for arrival, I guess is the question. Yeah, no, I think there's more that needs to be done. I, I think we need to improve uh, the number, just the sheer number of on-ramps. Um, I think the UI and UX need to be better. I think the ability to uh, self-custody needs to improve and get easier for the everyday person to do. Um, but again, this is really early in this in this technology. You know, we're only 13 years in, um, but that's the race, right? And so I don't think we're there yet. Um, now, at the same time, Bitcoin just needs to work and <laughs> Bitcoin just needs to remain uh, secure. You know, Bitcoin needs to maintain its monetary policy of only 21 million. You know, those are like core things that need to keep happening. And that's, that's ultimately what needs to happen is as these currencies uh, continue to get devalued, Bitcoin just needs to be there for them uh, to be a viable alternative. Um, and then in terms of the ease of use and functionality, like that all needs to improve but the underlying, uh, you know, important traits of Bitcoin and the properties of Bitcoin, you know, that's looking good right now. And it's really been good since day one. And it's just gradually improved um, as adoptions happen. So um, kind of two parts of that question, but or answer, but yeah. Got it. Thanks. Yep. Makes sense. Makes sense. Loving this. Great conversation. Kuro Hoddle, welcome up. Are you with us? Hey. Hey, hey. I am excited. I'm, I'm loving the, uh, the conversation today. And I just had um, a question, and maybe it was covered earlier, maybe earlier during the earlier interview. But do, is it, do you see... CBDCs being the base layer of a of a debt erasure jubilee. That's a really interesting question. Um, and um, if the debt erasure is the debt erasure of the sovereign, then yes. <laughs> um, but for private debt, it will be the opposite. So right now. Um, the world is in a sovereign debt crisis uh, where global debt to GDP, you know, has risen to over 350 um, percent. That was at, as of the end of 2021. So it's almost certainly much higher now. That's a lot of sovereign debt. The productive economy cannot um, sustain repayments on that debt. And we have multiple global economies 
um, who uh, or uh, sovereign governments who have already defaulted um, and others, uh, including industrialized economies like Japan, the United Kingdom that are on the brink. Um, and so governments need cash. Um, and one of the arguments that I make in the CBDC policy white paper um, is that um, a CBDC is a fast way to confiscate private wealth um, so that the state can um, begin paying down some of that debt. Thank you. Thank you. And I have one, one more thing I just want to throw in there just real quick. Um, do you see CBDCs being the base layer of, or maybe, maybe, not, maybe that's the wrong word, base layer, or being a part of pensions and social security and being embedded into that? Yeah, so um, sovereign uh, governments, they are going to begin holding Bitcoin. Um, many have already begun. Um, we've, we've seen most recently uh, that Russia and China are um, quietly uh, beginning to stockpile BTC. Um, and the question then is, how does a sovereign hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet? Um, one of the major ways that governments can do this is by um, investing uh, pension funds in, in Bitcoin. Um, this is something that I've actually, you know, been in discussions with uh, policymakers in Texas about. Um, they, there are stringent requirements in Texas, like in, in many other states and, and governments, around what types of assets um, public pension funds can hold. Um, so they're typically limited to only the, the most conservative risk-off assets, you know, like uh, treasuries, uh, money market, um, et cetera. So Bitcoin's volatility uh, has until now been an obstacle for many um, sovereigns to, to formally invest in Bitcoin or hold Bitcoin as part of these um, public funds. Um, that said, there are many other ways that a sovereign can hold Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Um, they could mine Bitcoin directly um, and hold the proceeds. Um, they could, you know, confiscate um, Bitcoin seized as a result of criminal activity and hold that. So like the Department of Justice currently is sitting on one of the largest <laughs> Uh, reserves of Bitcoin in the world, um, just based on the uh, criminal enforcement actions that, that they've done. Um, and their policy has been to auction off that Bitcoin, um, generally, you know, under market rates. Um, but perhaps um, we can convince um, the government to actually hold that Bitcoin um, and see it as the basis for a strategic Bitcoin reserve, much in the way that the United States holds gold at Fort Knox. Um, so there are many paths to sovereign adoption and pension funds are certainly one of them, um, but the volatility of the asset will be uh, one of the major barriers to, to that kind of institutional investment. Thank you so much. Sam, do you have some no, I just think Pierre Rochard had like a letter that was going around a couple of years ago trying to get them to do a, uh, a Bitcoin <laughs> reserve, which would be, you know, Pierre's just usually ahead of his time. Um, but I also agree, like a central bank digital currency, 
as these sovereigns try to deal with the debt crisis, um, if we just look at history, there are instances of when they, you know, took the wealth from the private sector. You know, Argentina nationalized $30 billion worth of private pension funds in the early 2000s. You had Cyprus in 2013 that did bail-ins. Uh, I think a central bank digital currency would make it easier for them to do something like that in terms of taking, uh, you know, household wealth to help them with their own the sovereign debt problem. Um, and if that happened, and you are an individual who has never thought about this, and then suddenly your part of your wealth was confiscated uh, because your government spent too much money that it didn't have and went into too much debt. All that has to happen is one time for you to say, hell no, I'm not doing that again. And then you're going to look, what should I do with, how do I protect myself from this? And the only viable option is Bitcoin. Um, And so if something like that happened, again, I just think that it would actually be a boon uh, for Bitcoin's adoption and help highlight Bitcoin's strengths and why it's important. All right. I don't see anybody else up on the stage. Feel free to request to come up. We still have some time left. I'll go ahead and ask a question. Um, Natalie, do you have any take on, you know, monetary policy in the near term? Uh, Obviously, it's a very important time. Uh, There's a lot of flux going on uh, in terms of monetary policy. What is the Fed doing besides what we all know? Uh, with the with the Fed with the with the rates with interest rates, um, what else is going on in terms of monetary policy right now, and what shifts do you see maybe coming uh, in the, in the near nearest future? Yeah, um, I mean, fundamentally, we have right now what's what someone I can't remember who recently called the everything Fed, <laughs> where they're trying to both um, contain inflation. Um, and, you know, prevent economic collapse and prop up, um, uh, you know, individual uh, spenders who are being hit hard with inflation um, through deficit spending. And so that there is a kind of trying to do everything at once that is a hallmark of incoherent policy and, and weak leadership. Um, and the reality is that um, the the critical decisions um, have already been made. Um, the The Fed is not in a position where the tools at its disposal can actually solve the underlying problems in um, the U.S. economy, which is a sovereign debt problem. Um, and and so, what is you know the the politicized Fed that we were talking about um, during the first hour, like? what is the answer of the political class? The, the answer of the political class is virtually always to spend more money. Um, and so we had, um, you know, an, an American infrastructure bill that cost $1.9 trillion that arguably, you know, the Chicago Fed has um, argued accounts for up to half of the inflation um, that we're seeing currently in the United States. Um, we have, you know, at the state level, um, policymakers say they're going to issue stimulus um, checks to people to help with the uh, inflation crisis. Uh, and, and so th- what we're seeing is the inability of the administrative state to mitigate 
the negative effects of policy decisions that it made um, previously. If we had an honest political administrative state, um, then our leaders would be saying something to the effect of, look, during the coronavirus pandemic, we were faced with an unprecedented economic shutdown, and we made the decision to print a lot of money in order to prevent our economy from completely cratering. That necessarily is going to have inflationary effects, and those effects cannot be reversed. At most, a monetary tightening can slow down the velocity of inflation, but it cannot undo inflation. That is a political decision we made, and we now have to live with the consequences. But that is not what wins elections. <laughs> and so instead, we have you know raising of the federal funds rate. We have um, a kind of bizarre um, international um, system of allegiances where we're you know uh, allowing allied economies to crater even as we demand their support for a military conflict that we are leading, that we are deficit spending um, to, uh, to participate in. Um, and so this, this is what tells me that we're in the end stages of um, a political economic order that is collapsing. Um, and the only question is, will the right kind of leadership emerge to steward the United States um, and the wide world through a, a period of transition that um, that could get devastating very fast. Sam, any hot takes on monetary policy? Uh, no, I thought Natalie just crushed it. Yeah, <laughs> I got nothing to add on that one. Um, cool. But I see Dick's got a question. So. Yeah, let's go to Dick's question. Yeah, my question, Natalie, is like when you say um, like volatility of the asset is an obstacle to institutional adoption, do you mean like perceived volatility? Because like when you when you talk about volatility and you, like everything is volatile right now, like whenever you talk about the Fed using the tools at their disposal, not being sufficient to handle the problem. Well, like every time they use those tools it creates massive volatility like in bond markets in you know in stocks and equities like it, it, it's everything is volatile it creates volatility in other countries like you said collapses their economy so like everything priced in dollars is going to be volatile whenever they use those tools so like I, I, like I, I just the idea that Bitcoin is a volatile asset is, is to me anymore is just like it's it's becoming like a meaningless phrase like I, and it's almost like oh it's just something they say so they don't have to adopt it what are your thoughts on that yeah absolutely um so it's all it's all a question of time scale right so the dollar has lost over 96 percent of its value since it was first introduced in 1913 so if you had held you know dollars in 1913 um <laughs> that they would be, you know, virtually worthless now. Um, however, that is not the timescale on which institutionals, uh, institutional investors make decisions about how to allocate capital. Um, and so on a one-year, two-year, five-year timescale, 
um, it is still the case that U.S. treasuries are less volatile um, than Bitcoin. Um, and, and so what these institutional investors are looking for is actually a longer track record of asset performance um, because, you know, the response. So, there, so basically there's no yeah. way to convince them that there's there's it's a, if Bitcoin is a stable asset, no, no matter what you do. It just has to exist for a longer period of time, like right. Correct. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's just insane to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> well, and and this is where you're seeing some differentiation. So the, you know, the the smart money, <laughs> the institutional investors who can read the writing on the wall are in fact making significant and have made significant Bitcoin allocations. But um, when you talk about state owned, like government owned. Um, investment funds, they are actually prohibited by law from making those types of um, perhaps counterintuitive uh, moves. Um, right. So like, w- yeah. like if a spot ETF were approved, I mean, that would be a lot easier for a government to swallow. I mean, like, yeah, you know, you, you had got you had Canadian pension funds investing in three arrows capital for cr- crying out loud. Like, right, right. Uh, Right. No, I mean, and this differs by jurisdiction. So it, it really uh, the amount of discretion that pension funds managers have um, is different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, and whether they're, you know, privately held pension funds or publicly held pension funds. Um, but uh, you're you're absolutely right that there is there is simply a contingent, a contingent of institutional investors um, that need to see a much longer track record of performance before they can uh, invest in an asset. And that's just a, a limitation that we're going to have to look through. But you say, like, and then, like, I get that. And, they, like, they look at Bitcoin as something new, but, like, you you know, they need to see a track record. 13 years is not a long enough track record. Um, but, like, you know, a, a tech stock startup can start and have five-year track record, and that's good enough. But, like, uh, it just seems like if one major G7 country were to like start doing this, it could have a you know a you know an, a, a massive spiraling effect. I mean, it just it. Do you do you personally think that like there's uh you know a lot of Bitcoin accumulating in institutions that are like quietly doing it and like you know buying in without you know announcing it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and again, the vehicle, the investment vehicle is what matters. If you are a state-owned pension fund, you can't invest in equities often. Um, so, it, you know, you can't do the types of like, um, you know, hot VC-based allocation that perhaps um, privately managed pension funds or, or investment funds can do. And so when you're talking about institutional investment, you always need to understand what the what the governance structure of that investment vehicle is um, to know, you know, whether you're barking up a tree that, you know, <laughs> whether you can have any success whatsoever. Um, but sovereign actors can invest in Bitcoin in many different ways, you know, like I was saying earlier. And so, like, in Texas, even though, um, say, the public pension funds may have trouble doing it unless the legislative, the statute is modified by the legislature. Um, 
Nevertheless, you have the city of Fort Worth mining Bitcoin directly. Um, so they're they're adding right. Bitcoin to the state balance sheet that way. I'm more, um, thinking, I'm more thinking along the lines of like, you know, the countries that right now that are getting like that you were speaking of that are getting cratered by like, right, you know, just right. mi- minor rate hikes like Japan, uh, you know, uh, the UK, like these countries need solutions. And like, right, right. And, and like the, to them. Why would Bitcoin look any less volatile than their current sovereign currency, like their own bond markets, you know? Right, right. No, that that's exactly right. Um, and so we, we're actually seeing a move toward um, Bitcoin. Um, so just yesterday, um, UK lawmakers, you know, voted to, to regulate, uh, to reg- recognize Bitcoin and other crypto assets as um, regulated financial instruments. Um, and so this adoption process is already underway it's just happening frustratingly slowly from the point of view of the bitcoin community who are just like duh i mean (laughs) come on (laughs) right they see the writing on the wall and like it just seems like uh you know many of them are going to seem to try other things that are going to not going to work like that's the way it appears to me like they're going to look at everything besides like you know, the hard asset of Bitcoin itself, you know, in any right. derivative form before they look into, you know, you know, before they look into that, they're going to look into any other option that like is just not going to be viable, you know, and sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Swart. Sorry, man. Or you guys can take over. I'm, I'm done. I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Thank you. You got a question? Uh Around. Hey, uh, yeah, just want to um, make a couple of comments and get uh, you guys' take on, uh, uh, you know, what I see, like the, the big picture CBDC rollout. You know, I, I put something up in the nest and, you know, the Rishi Sunak uh, being voted in as prime minister, basically he's one of the young global leaders and he's married to um, uh, the daughter of uh, someone that started Infosys in India. It's a big tech company, multi-billion dollar company. And that same company actually had um, a role in uh, implementing the Aadhaar card, which is a card in India, uh, which is a digital ID system. And then if you look at IMF's uh, article that I posted up in the desk, it basically says in order to uh, roll out these uh, Uh, digital currencies, you need a digital ID and KYC infrastructure in place. So this shows that there's, you know, real real big connections between uh, India and the new prime minister of of UK. And I just want to see, uh, get uh, get, uh, everyone's take on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There is an inextricable link between money and identity. Um, and, and I actually came to Bitcoin through uh, the digital identity space. Um, so my company built the first Bitcoin-based um, wallet where you could store verifiable records like, you know, your uh, diploma or transcript or uh, license to practice medicine or whatever. Um, and it was all privately verifiable against Bitcoin, um, but it wasn't stored in like a shared database that, um, you know, anyone could access at any time. Um, and so we really were pioneering a movement called self-sovereign identity, 
um, which is uh, a push to move control of digital identity back into the hands of the end user um, away from the software platform. Um, and Atar um, in India has, has been a uh, almost cautionary tale um, for the ways that uh, a state-led centralized digital identity project uh, can, can go awry for a number of reasons, which we don't have to get into here. Um, but uh, to your point, um, CBDCs, one of the design requirements for CBDCs everywhere is full um, AML KYC identity uh, verification for every transaction. Um, and so it used to be uh, <laughs> that, you know, you only had to declare your identity um, when uh, in the United States when making transactions over a certain amount. Um, post-war on terror, um, with the introduction of the Patriot Act, that amount was drastically decreased. Um, and now, because it's technologically feasible, every financial transaction is fully identity verified. Um, every government that rolls out these solutions, every financial institution that um, facilitates them, argues that this is necessary to prevent the financing of terrorism and money laundering. Um, we have not seen uh, the, the rates of terrorist financing and money laundering uh, go down in any appreciable way with the introduction of these uh, regulations. I'm talking about you know, overall criminal enforcement actions um, globally. Um, and so instead what we're seeing is the penalization of everyday activity by ordinary people who are not suspect of a crime, um, but who have no recourse because in effect, the uh, Fourth Amendment um, protections against unreasonable search and seizure have been entirely waived in the realm of personal finance. Um, and this is a constitutional problem. It's something that actually needs to make its way to the Supreme Court. It needs to be a, a political fight. Um, and right now, the entrenched interests are such that everyone is profiting from um, or benefiting from the control offered by surveillance capitalism. Um, and that's something that we need to change. Yeah, everything I've read, um, basically, it's a digital ID system is almost a prerequisite to rolling out a CBDC. And it really comes down to um, the UN sustainability Old development goals. They have a 2030 goal to get everybody on a digital ID. And it, it's kind of trickled down from there, it seems like. And for the CBD to function, especially a global CBDC, there has to be some kind of standardized digital ID system uh, beforehand for it to work. And it really shows, again, um, two things, which is they say it's for financial inclusion. Uh, but to me, having a digital ID um, would actually hurt those poorest amongst us who don't have access to technology and, and couldn't uh, be participate in this new system uh, that they're trying to lay down. And then the second thing is that how far away we are to actually executions, executing something like this. You know, what is the supply side of market readiness, the economic structures, the hardware infrastructure? Um, uh, a CBDC ecosystem includes like uh, the distribution, storage, usage, customer service, compliance, reporting, monitoring, maintenance, 
of these CBDC wallets that will include digital ID in them. And it just seems like we're pretty far away from, from that. So um, I just wanted to add that kind of nuance. Yeah, and, and I would say, you know, we're pretty far away, but not that far away. Um, because CBDCs, as, as they're implemented, will use the existing digital banking system um, as, as its delivery mechanism. And so you're not going to have a CBDC account with the Fed. You're going to have a CBDC account with Bank of America um, or Chase um, or whatever. Um, and they already know everything about you. Um, so the identity verification piece is almost trivial. Like you don't actually, this is one of the areas where, you know, CBDCs are um, potentially highly over-engineered is, is we already have a digital banking system that, you know, fully tracks and traces, you know, everything everyone does. <laughs> um, and so what is then the value of the CBDC? Um, well, it is um, creating space for uh, the elimination of physical cash. So anything that today you would use physical cash as opposed to your digital banking system to do, um, the, uh, the state will mandate that you use the CBDC instead um, and eventually just phase out um, physical cash um, and the direct monetary policy. So you have a bank account that's fully digital, fully identity verified, but now um, the state can directly confiscate funds from that account. Um, through the imposition of negative interest rates or just direct haircuts um, on your balance um, or, you know, limitations on the amount of CBDCs that you can hold in your accounts so that you don't cannibalize um, the uh, commercial money creation um, of the private banking system. Um, so the, the value, again, of the CBDC is entirely for the state. It is not for the end user. But Natalie, they say that it's going to complement cash. Yeah, absolutely. And protect privacy um, and, you know, be super reliable and all this other stuff. Actually, during um, my congressional briefing on this topic, one of I mean, that was one of the questions um, that one of the staffers asked me is like, but but they say it will protect privacy. Like, why shouldn't we believe them? Um, well, I mean, you can just look at the proposed technical architecture of these solutions. Um, any implied privacy is not privacy from the state. Um, and so if your definition of privacy is such that the state can see everything, then perhaps it does in effect <laughs> protect privacy. But, but I would suspect that's not what most people think of when they think of privacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like the issue with electronic money in general if you're trying to design something private, you know, property, uh, cash offers that by default. A any technology, um, you know, privacy as a feature has to be laboriously engineered rather than be like an intrinsic characteristic of the uh, record-keeping system, if you will. And so no matter how hard they try, even if they wanted to, um, it wouldn't be as private as cash, I don't think. Absolutely. I guess my thing when I said that it would it, it a little farther away, like I, I don't understand how they would build something like with interoperability between 
central bank digital currencies anytime soon with a standardized ID system. I guess you think that because it's going to go through the commercial banking system, which is already kind of global in nature, you think that's going to be easier than maybe I think? Is that right? Yeah, there, there are already um, widely used and adopted standards for uh, digital identity. Um, and there is a growing crop of standards for um, blockchain enabled digital identity that is actively being adopted by governments. Um, and so, you know, if you look at, for example, ISO standards, like there are, you know, well-known standards for things like digital driver's licenses and uh, other forms of government issued identification that are, are fairly well standardized. Um, so that's not to say that there will be one digital identity system to rule them all, um, but rather that there already are uh, many digital identity systems that um, talk to each other using uh, open standards, um, and that consolidation is is ongoing. Gotcha. Thanks, Natalie. Is there any other uh, questions, anybody, Brady? Any other hands out there? No more. That's okay. All uh, right, we're, man. We're, yeah. at time, we're at time anyway. So this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks everyone who came up on stage here to ask questions. Love that y'all participating. And I think they were great questions and great comments. Thank you, Sam and Natalie, uh, for giving us a couple hours of your time. If you are not following Sam and Natalie, you need to follow both of them. They both uh, do some great in-depth writing a uh, bunch of research and writing and, and they do something that I can't do, which is sit down on an with an empty page and uh, put together some amazing stuff. I'm a great editor, not the best writer uh, from an empty page. So I, I appreciate uh, what they can do. Um, so thanks, Natalie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to insert here a shameless plug for the uh, Texas Bitcoin Foundation, which is the 501c3 uh, charity that uh, I founded in Texas earlier this year, we are um, launching uh, an academic journal dedicated to Bitcoin and political economy, which we're calling the Satoshi Papers. And that journal investigates the relationship between money and state. Um, we're also looking to put on um, a really interesting conference next year uh, with uh, scholars from across different disciplines um, on that same topic. So if you are motivated to support our work, um, go to txbitcoinfoundation.org. Um, you can donate in both a USD and BTC, and your donation is fully tax deductible because we are a C3. Um, so if you want to divert, you know, some of the money you would have given to the state to an organization thinking about how the state could be better, um, please donate to us. Thank you so much. Go do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to do that. Sam, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Any final words? Uh, no, I just want to, uh, you know, thank Natalie for sharing her knowledge here. Um, and um, yeah, I, I don't really have much else to add. I mean, Pacific Bitcoin, we talked about that a lot but i'll be there so if anybody wanted to come and, and chat say hi uh but other than that just um you know support bitcoin 
raise awareness about central bank digital currencies and, and what's wrong with them. And um, I think we're going to win just because incentives uh, outpower any kind yes. of coercion. <laughs> we absolutely will. We, we're already winning. Um, we just need to let that trajectory play out. We are winning. We're going to win. But uh, there's still a lot of work that we can do to either speed that up or make it happen in the best way possible. So uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, Bitcoiners here. Well, I, I think all the Bitcoiners here that are listening are doing that work uh, in one way or another. So let's just keep working together, pushing this thing forward. Uh, and hopefully getting adoption done as fast as we can and in a way where people understand uh, what's going on. So thanks again to everyone. Thanks for joining us. I uh, hope to see you at Pacific Bitcoin, pacificbitcoin.com. You can use code Brady for a discount. Uh, jump in there a couple weeks until we until we do it, especially if you're in like the Southern Cali area, the LA area. Um, you know, this is kind of a no-brainer in my opinion. Just come and join us. It's going to be well worth the price of admission it's not just the conference. There's other stuff going on as well. So um, come join us. Okay. Thanks, everyone. We'll end it here. Cheers. Thanks to Sam and Natalie for joining us. On behalf of the SWAN team, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the SWAN Signal podcast. It's fun to join us on the live broadcasts on YouTube and Twitter spaces. You can subscribe to this podcast if you're not already at swansignalpodcast.com. Pacific Bitcoin was amazing this year in Santa Monica, California. We're doing it again next year. Check out PacificBitcoin2023.com to grab your steeply discounted tickets, buy early, save sats, and get to enjoy all the fun and incredible connection with other Bitcoiners at Pacific Bitcoin 2023. Check out Swan for easy recurring savings plans, concierge services for businesses and high net worth individuals, and many other services at swan.com. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. The best way to accumulate Bitcoin and to start and continue your journey learning Bitcoin. Thanks for joining us today.